0: This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org software. Developers, are you ready? It's time to upgrade your data platform to InterSystems IRIS. Choose your language, choose your tools, choose your environment. Collaborate, build faster, and deploy more efficiently. When you can make faster decisions, there's no telling what you'll create. Ready, set, code. Start coding for free. Visit intersystems.com slash try to try iris.
1: Welcome to Software Engineering Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Doolittle. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Philip Kiley about writing for software developers. Philip writes code and words. He is the author of Writing for Software Developers and has written technical tutorials for clients, including CSS Tricks, Smashing Magazine, and Twilio. Philip graduated with honors from Grinnell College with a BA in computer science. Philip, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Hi, Jeff, thanks for having me here today. I'm really excited to talk to you. So you recently published a book, About writing for software developers. Why should software developers care about writing anything else besides code? So, if you make
2: something, your job isn't done just because you wrote a piece of code. And let's say, for the sake of argument, it's the best piece of code ever written and it's going to solve a lot of people's problems. If people don't know that your code is going to solve their problems, then it might as well not even exist because they're not going to be able to find it, they're not going to be able to use it. And so, As a software engineer, I've seen how a lot of my friends sort of turn up their nose to the business marketing sides of the profession and say, no, I'm just a pure coder. My job is to create engineering artifacts. And that's absolutely the most important part of the job. And the thing that we do uniquely well as software engineers is creating technical artifacts. But if we make these things and then we don't share them, then they're not going to be able to help people. So writing is one of the best ways to share our work and make sure that it has the impact that we're looking for. Okay. So
1: you mentioned writing there from maybe the business marketing and the discovery side of things. Are there any other aspects of writing that you feel are important for software developers to know about or learn about? Absolutely.
2: You know, we're not just writing copy for a website or even writing a technical article explaining how to use a piece of open source code you also write documentation, memos to your team, emails. Every day, if you're communicating in any sort of asynchronous fashion, it's probably through writing. And so in order to effectively work with other people, work in a team, share knowledge across teams or within a team about a project, onboard people, there are so many different things that really strong written content can help you do. And when I say written content, I'm speaking much more broadly than just the sort of thing you might see on a company's blog. You know, this, this concept encapsulates things like readme's, documentations, and basically every other written artifact, even, you know, the history in your Slack
1: channels. Yeah, then that's interesting. So you did make a big assumption that people are actually writing documentation, which I might question, but <laughs> you went down to the level of things you say in Slack, and I was about to ask you, so it kind of segues perfectly. What about somebody who says to you, my code is self-documenting, and it speaks for itself?
2: Well, if that's true, that's awesome. But I think that even if that's the case, you're still going to be doing things like commit messages, or even little comments, even if it's just to yourself. And you can think about it like tweeting, almost. Like if you've ever written a tweet, and you have to encapsulate an idea in this very small amount of space... Code is an incredibly information-dense way to write. And technical content relies on code samples that sometimes, you know, you don't have to explain every single line of. Def, funk, vars is self-documenting to anyone who knows the language. They understand this is a function. Unless this is a very simple introduction to the language, you don't need to explain that. You're just wasting people's time if you do so. So just because code is this very information-dense way of communicating it means exactly what you want it to mean, that doesn't mean that even very good, clean code doesn't need further explanation. Because the code is gonna do a great job of telling people what it does, but it's not necessarily going to do a great job of telling people why it exists, who it's useful for, what the purpose is behind writing it. And these are all of the things that even very small pieces of documentation, like comments and commit logs, these sort of tweet link things that are a really fun challenge to write and make concise and meaningful, all the way up to entire manuals and books about how to do things, everything along that scale tends to be less concerned with breaking down exactly what happens and tends to be more concerned with talking about why and how these artifacts exist.
1: So in your experience, do you sense that there's places where the documentation is insufficient that you might recommend that it be increased?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this in my own projects, both in my personal life and at work. You know, I'm no saint when it comes to sitting down and really writing out what happened and why. And I think that in some cases, this practice is more important. If you think about something like a retrospective or a postmortem on an outage or some security flaw, these documents can be really important for fostering a sense of understanding and making sure that mistakes aren't repeated. All of which to say, just because the documentation might be lacking universally, you know, we can always have more documentation. That doesn't really help so much because we only have a limited amount of time to work on these projects. Everyone has deadlines to ship by. And so it's about thinking about precisely who the audience for certain pieces of technical communication might be, and what we can do that's going to give us the highest return on the time that we invest in creating it in order to communicate important information about the work that we do. It's interesting you
1: mentioned the audience. Speak a little bit about an audience focus versus a sender focus. Does that play into your thoughts on how software engineers should write about their work?
2: Having your audience in mind is the number one way to improve your writing. And here's why. Let's say you're programming something. Let's say, you know, you're you're writing an API and it's going to return some information. It doesn't matter how well you implement it. It doesn't matter how scalable your deployment is. All of this other stuff doesn't matter if the information that you are conveying is not going to the right place. So... If you think about it, it's kind of the same for writing. You are creating something for an audience. That audience might be one person. You might be emailing your boss. Great, your boss is your audience. That audience might be a huge number of people. You know, you work on Django or Rails or some huge open source framework, and you're editing the introductory tutorial that tens of thousands of people read every year to get into this project. It doesn't matter. You still have an audience every time you write. And that audience, I should even mention, could be yourself if you're writing yourself a note or a memo about how something works or why you made a particular choice while implementing something. And so if you don't have a good understanding of who your audience is, no amount of craft in terms of, you know, having great sentences or having really clear explanations is going to fix it if you're not giving them the information that they need. And so when I'm writing to a technical audience, I'm able to say things that I couldn't say to a non-technical audience. When I'm writing to try to convince a coworker that my implementation is correct while they're performing a code review, that's going to be very different than trying to strike a more pedagogical tone as I'm trying to explain a piece of code in a technical tutorial for a wide audience. And so... Every single aspect of your writing changes depending on who you're writing for. And that's why understanding your audience is an incredibly critical step. And I love how you pointed
1: out that you might be the audience. It's always terrifying to do a git blame and then discover that you're the person responsible for the state of that bit of code. And it reminds me of a funny scene in The Simpsons where Homer has a bottle of vodka and a tub of mayonnaise, and he's about to consume both of them. And Marge says something along the lines of, Homer, I don't think that's such a great idea. And Homer says, oh, that's a problem for future Homer. Boy, I don't envy that guy. And in a similar fashion, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, we hate our future selves if we don't properly document things, I think is maybe a, a takeaway of what
2: you're saying there. Definitely. And, you know, a lot of people ask me how to improve at writing. And one of the best ways to do that is, you know, just practice more and we can get more into that later. But one of the best ways to practice is just write to yourself, you know, keep a developer log, keep a running documentation on your personal projects. I don't always do these things, but when I do them, that's when I see the biggest return in terms of learning more from the things that I'm working on, and then I'm able to pick them up later and really understand where I was and keep going where I left off.
1: Now it seems like, you know, what you mentioned is true in so many pursuits in life. If you want to play guitar, you play guitar. If you want to surf, you surf. But I think sometimes people might feel like it's so daunting that it's difficult to get started. And especially with writing, I think people might struggle. And I'm curious if your experience, if you've seen this as well, where where people maybe struggle with where to get started. And it sounds like you're saying is just just get started and start doing it. But how do you help people to overcome maybe that resistance or that concern about whether what they write is going to be received well or is going to accomplish the task for which they're writing it.
2: Yeah. So let me turn that question around on you, actually, with a software perspective. When you are creating a piece of software, you know, a new web app or something, you've opened up your IDE, you've got a totally blank page. What's the first thing you do? I
1: usually do a readme file for me to kind of give me some framing and tasks of what I need to do
2: first. Exactly. And it's the exact same thing that you'd want to do when you're writing, because the enemy is the blank page. You just have to get something on there. So I approach writing code and writing articles or even an entire book in exactly the same way. It's just a project that needs to be broken down into steps. After the readme, what I do generally, I usually work with a framework. So you know, I'll do Django admin start project, for example, and that's going to create some boilerplate. It's going to create some structure. And as soon as you have structure, that's going to help out a ton in creating your content. Boy, that'd be
1: great if we had a CLI for kicking off our papers in a similar fashion, but. It would be excellent.
2: So you can create for yourself a similar structure in writing by creating an outline that talks about, first of course, your audience, and then the information that you want to cover, how these things relate to each other, figure out a meaningful order to put these ideas on the page, and so even, you know, five bullet points is so much better than a blank page for getting started. And then you just come back to it. You just sit down every day, you know, don't try and force it all out. If it's, if it's your first time trying to write a 2000 word technical tutorial, don't try and do that in one sitting, do it for half an hour every day for a week and see what you can come up with. And so it's exactly the same skills that we've all built up working on software engineering projects of taking a big complicated thing and breaking it down into achievable tasks. You just have to do the same thing with your writing. That makes sense. So we've kind of moved into this a little bit,
1: I think, but in general, what do you feel are the elements of effective technical writing and technical writers? You've mentioned a couple, but are there others that you would want to include? Yeah,
2: we can basically break it down on the axes of the two elements of this phrase, technical writing, those technical and those writing. So to start with the technical, that's pretty simple. You have to know a little bit about what you're writing about. And that doesn't mean you have to be the industry expert in a thing to write about that thing. I've written about a ton of stuff where, you know, I maybe have a yellow belt in these concepts. I'm beyond the beginner level. I have something to teach But I'm not an expert. I'm not the person who wrote the open source repository. I'm just someone who's been using it for a while. Something that in my interview with Angel Guizma for the book, something that he talked about was having really authentic content. And the way he and his team achieved that was just a ton of research. Even if you don't have the capacity of an entire team of technical content people to do research with, you can still put in the time to do example projects play with whatever technology you're going to be writing about, and sort of figure out the technical side to make sure that you have a strong understanding to convey to your readers. I'm going to assume, though, that the listeners of this podcast more or less have the technical side figured out. It's the writing side that people can get tripped up on. And so with that, good writing has a lot of definitions and is partially a matter of taste. You know, my English professors at Grinnell would certainly hate the type of writing that I do for clients, and my editors, you know, I don't know if they love it, but they think it's good enough to publish. So there's always that matter of taste, and when I say taste, you might be thinking, hmm, who has taste? The audience. Exactly. It all comes back to that. Who you're writing for determines how you write. In terms of not universal, but as close as I can get, um, having clear, approachable syntax. One of the great things about computer science is that there are a lot of people in this field who speak English as a second, third, fourth, whatever language. And so having content that's approachable to everyone, regardless of their background in, you know, literary English, for example, that's really important. So, you know, that doesn't mean you can't use precise terms to mean exactly what you want to say. But, you know, don't throw in $10 words for the sake of having them or showing off your big vocabulary. That's something that I definitely try to avoid. And having nice, clear syntax, having someone edit your work, even if they're not technical, just to make sure that it sounds good reading your work aloud to make sure that it sounds conversational, sounds like the sort of thing that is reasonable for a person to have written. All of these things are steps that you can take to make your writing better. But ultimately, like I said, good writing is a matter of taste, and the way that you develop both your taste and your ability to match that taste is just practice. Now, the recommendations you made there sound like they primarily
1: apply to larger works. So, how do some of the elements of what you're describing fit in more of the smaller scenarios? Comments in code, bullets in a readme, or commit messages? How does good writing demonstrate its importance in those contexts?
2: Writing really, really short things has been a challenge for a long time. For this, we have to turn to some of the skills that, you know, a poet might use when they're writing a haiku, It's not just about what you say, it's about what you don't say. So when you're writing a commit message, good writing is leaving out extraneous detail, leaving out words that you don't need, and just focusing on conveying exactly the information you want to say to exactly who needs to hear it in the minimum amount of time possible. Even if it's just a sentence, you can still write it down, read it aloud, change it if it sounds bad, That said, if you're writing just a commit message, it's important to understand that I'm not saying you need to spend 30 minutes crafting a perfect poetic commit message that says, I added five lines, it will fix the checkout bug, it's snowing on Mount Fiji. You know, you don't need to write a haiku in your, which I know that wasn't a haiku, but you don't need to write a haiku in your GitHub logs every single time. It's just more about getting the job done with a decent amount of effort and moving on, doing it again, doing it again until it feels natural. And of course, context there
1: matters as well. If it's your branch and you're just doing work in progress, then that's one thing. But when you're committing it for consumption by others, hopefully now that audience focus, as you said, was the number one consideration, then at that point, you're going to have to think differently about that. Any other elements of effective writing that you feel are important? Maybe, maybe ones that software developers aren't typically known for possibly, or, or maybe have overlooked that would be worth mentioning.
2: There's somewhat of a shared understanding in software development that as software developers were somehow exempt from the rules of the road in terms of just generic decent writing, you know, proper usage, proper punctuation, that sort of stuff. And I would encourage everyone to just understand that just like we have conventions and explicit rules in various programming languages, human languages have the same things for the same reasons. It's just so that we can all understand each other better. So I think that having you know a decent grasp on whatever language you're writing in, that gets you 90% of the way there. And the rest of it is just about understanding the audience and making sure that you have a clear, direct message to tell them.
1: So I imagine a lot of what you've shared so far, you discuss in your book, which is, of course, called Writing for Software Developers. Great name. So why this book and why now?
2: Thank you. Uh, Writing for Software Developers is a really tough title to live up to because there's just a lot of information there. Why this book? Because it didn't exist before, and uh, when I started out, I really needed it. And why now? Because I finally have the background and experience that made me feel like I was able to write it. I think that as software development increases in being a remote-first profession, where a lot of people are working asynchronously even... So, you know, there's there's two types of remote work, one where you're just on video calls all the time and still trying to have the same feeling of everyone working on the same thing at the same time. Another is when I might be in Clive, Iowa, working on programming something, and then I might send it off and someone in, I don't know, let's say Japan is going to pick it up when they wake up and it's and it's their business hours. If you're doing asynchronous stuff like that, which is, of course, increasing a lot these days, then that's where effective writing can help. So I was thinking about that as I was writing the book and the potential for an increase in good content internally. But the book mostly focuses on good content for things like corporate blogs or an engineer's personal blog, where you're trying to share details and insights from your day-to-day work, the things that you're creating, with a wider audience so that everyone can learn together and grow together as programmers. And so with that focus, I mean, so many companies these days are turning to content marketing. So many developers are publishing individual blogs to talk about their own technical accomplishments that I think that now more than ever, it's important that we have some shared texts as to how to do this well. So tell us a little bit about your approach to the book. How did you prepare
1: for it? And how did you go about researching for the book? Maybe give us some
2: insights into that process. The book took six months to write, which was a big surprise to me estimating the length of long projects is hard. And I have a reputation among my friends for saying, hey, we're going to do this thing. It's going to be super fun. And we're going to get it done by the end of winter break or the end of this week or something. And then the project takes a whole year. You sound like every software engineer I've ever met. Well, most. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So the same exact thing happened here. It was Thanksgiving. I was talking to my mother about this idea for this book. And I said, I think it'll be a lot of fun and I'm going to get it done by the end of winter break." And then I sat down, I wrote an outline, and I realized that this topic is A, so much bigger than I had previously imagined, and B, there were so many fewer resources on it than I thought there would be, that I set out, originally, I was going to call this thing the technical content development handbook, which is a substantially narrower approach to the topic, focusing entirely on just making articles for clients. Mm -hmm. So I arrived at this larger topic. And I realized that even with the work that I'd been doing over the past, at that point, past year, I didn't have all of the answers for the questions that I wanted to raise in the book. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go interview people. I have a small background in journalism. I worked at the school newspaper for two semesters. One of those is the features editor. So I was very used to writing stories almost entirely based on interviews. So, I started reaching out to people. I've always loved sending cold emails. I know it's kind of weird to love sending cold emails, but it's just really exciting to reach out to people who are a thousand times too busy to talk to me and pitch them on something and see what they say. And, you know, that's even how I got on the show. It's a very important part of my writing process and the process of how I do everything else. But, I sent these emails to almost 100 people, 11 of them got back to me, which was a huge surprise, including people whose work I've been reading for years who have been incredibly foundational in my understanding of what it means to be a software engineer. And so it was really, really cool to get to talk to all of these people. And then what I did is I transcribed these interviews, I sent them So I mentioned my mom earlier. She's a professional copy editor, and this was a huge advantage in my writing process because I was able to get this professional assistance for uh, heavily discounted friends and family. But anyway, I went through figuring out how to shape these interviews into something that was clean and readable while still authentic to the conversation that we'd been having. And then at the same time, I was working on building up my side of the story, writing down everything I knew about this topic, fleshing out my outline, just like how I was talking about earlier with connecting all these sections together. So once I had about 30,000 words written, I excerpted all of these interviews, just like I used to do at the newspaper, put them in as block quotes, contextualized them, did three rounds of editing, one round with beta readers, one developmental edit with my mom, one paper proofread, then formatted it and put it up. So that was the writing process. It took six months. During that time, you know, my college shut down. I had to come home, which was, of course, incredibly disruptive to a lot of people. And I'm one of the more fortunate ones in this situation. But ultimately, that did give me more time to work on the book. I was basically, when I say I was working on it full time, I don't mean 40 hours a week. I mean, I wake up, I work on book, I go to sleep. I wake up, I work on book, I go to sleep for almost a month. And that was the time that I just kept revising and revising the content. And that's not something that I think anyone really needs when you're putting together a book, but it definitely accelerated the process.
1: And when you're home with maybe not much else to do. That's a good way to take advantage of an opportunity
2: in a difficult time. It was, you know, I definitely wish that the book had taken longer because I was busy, you know, enjoying the world with everyone else. But unfortunately, that wasn't possible. And I'm just glad that I had the, you know, fortunate background to be in a situation where I was able to use this time to focus on creating something instead of focusing on surviving, which is a much harder struggle that a lot of people are facing absolutely true
0: calling all developers there's no telling what you can create when you upgrade your data platform to inner systems iris are you ready to build the applications you want however you want them are you ready to develop applications faster than ever collaborate build faster and deploy more efficiently tomorrow's next breakthroughs are waiting for you today inner systems iris data platform ready set code start coding for free Visit intersystems.com/slash try to try Iris.
1: So clearly some aspects of technical writing result in you know, maybe a committed markdown file to a repository. But what you're describing with your book kind of has a different endpoint. And the endpoint here is publishing. And obviously there's some business aspects to that as well. And so for someone who's interested as a software developer or engineer in actually producing content that they're going to sell. Share a little bit about your experience of the business side of publishing your own book.
2: The business side is really interesting. Starting off from the perspective of an individual software engineer wanting to get paid for a piece of writing, I maintain a site called Who whopaystechnicalwriters.com. Right now, it lists 43 places that are known to pay for technical content, and I'm getting more submissions as I can to figure out how to expand that list. So there are a lot of places out there that include all the places that I've written for, that openly solicit, hey, we want you to write for us, we want you to work with our editors to develop great pieces of technical content, and we're going to pay for that. And the rates for those are usually, you know, at the very low end, usually about $200 for an article, and at the high end tends to be about 500 and you can go even higher from there, depending on the value of what you're offering and how the business is able to use it. But for me, you know, even starting out, just getting these paychecks wasn't answering my questions. I always wanted to know, where was this money coming from? You know, why are these companies going to invest in this thing that I'm creating? Because if I don't understand that, then I'm not going to understand how to make something that's going to be really useful for them. So the business side from the company's perspective can really depend. And it's all about how they monetize their audience. So some publications like Smashing Magazine, are very sponsor and advertiser focused. Uh, They have a little bit of direct sales too in a membership. So those are three ways that a lot of businesses can make money. But the majority of technical content, in my opinion, exists as uh, content marketing. So if you look at something like Twilio, they're creating technical content that is on one hand useful for you, as in you're gonna learn how to create a cool application, However, that cool application just happens to use Twilio's technology and is maybe going to drive signups. And you can even think of something like documentation as content marketing because if a developer tool has really, really great documentation – then that's going to make other developers talk about it, have some word of mouth spread. It's going to make people less likely to churn if they have problems that they can't figure out while well, they can just go to the documentation, figure out that problem that reduces your customer support costs. So there's all sorts of benefits to having really great explanations of your stuff. And that's why you see a lot of companies in developer tools and hosting, you know, Twilio, DigitalOcean, these sort of companies leading in how they create technical content. I think another great example is Stripe and the integration docs they have. They don't necessarily do the traditional, here's an article that explains stuff, but focus more on the documentation side and reducing their support costs by creating docs. So that's, you know, all of that is one universe where there's plenty of money cycling through technical content. And then another one is just books. You, know, you have major publishers like No Starch Press, O'Reilly, Manning, all of these places putting out technical books. And if you want to get into that, one of the best ways is by having some published articles that you can point to as proof that, hey, I can work with an editor to create great technical content that people want to read. So there are a lot of different ways to approach the business side of writing. And ultimately, it just depends on which model you think is going to allow you to do the work you want to do. And so for me, that generally tends to be for the articles, working with a publisher, understanding how the thing I'm creating is going to be valuable for their business, and then creating something that is first, legitimately useful for the reader, and then second, useful for their business, so they're going to be incentivized to purchase and publish it. And then, of course, on the book side, just self-publishing. And typically, I wouldn't bring up the business side
1: because software engineering radio is about the engineering side. This isn't software entrepreneurship radio. However, I think in the current world situation, it seems like there's some opportunities there for people to maybe fill in a pay gap or, or be productive if they've been laid off by producing technical content. Have you interacted with people who maybe that's been uh, part of their approach to this situation as well? Yeah, I have. And that's
2: why I did, you know, of course, make my book free to anyone who has been laid off or, for an, or as a student for any other reason can't purchase it because, you know, this writing technical content has been a real bridge for me into proper full-time software engineering work. And so if this book can serve as a bridge for other people, then that's, you know, that's fantastic. That's the same reason that I created this Who Pays Technical Writers site. I think that, You know, it's not, it's definitely not the only way in. I can't necessarily even say with any authority that it's the best way in, but it's the way that worked for me. Before you said something about a yellow belt, and I imagine
1: you have some background in martial arts, and I'm curious how that background might have influenced
2: the way you write and the way you approach software development. I started taking Taekwondo when I was five years old and did that all the way until I went to college. I owned a third don black belt in Taekwondo. In college I studied boxing and I've also studied a bit of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and so between all of these things I've learned a lot that have contributed to my professional work. In Taekwondo one day the instructor sat us all down and we had, you know, something that my mom calls a puddle chat which is a long story I won't get into but basically just you know the instructor was trying to impart some wisdom onto us. And so What he said is, can anyone tell me at what belt do you become a teacher? And you know, of course, we all said black belt, no, third don, black belt, or no, fourth don when you're a master. And what he said was, no, you become a teacher as a yellow belt. As soon as you have something that signifies that you have made your first accomplishment in the field, then you can immediately turn around and start helping people, you know, paying it forward and demonstrating to people who are even newer than you what the right thing to do is. And that's, you know, that's a huge responsibility that you get very early on. And so this isn't to discount the work and the importance of the people with, you know, quote unquote, black belts in software engineering or people who are at the top of their fields, their insights, the stuff that they create is incredibly important and we should all read it to make sure that we're learning from the best of the best. That said, there are only so many of these people and I like to think about my technical content as coming from a yellow belt mentality. You know, I am still fairly new to software engineering. I've only been doing it for a few years. And so I wouldn't want to take that authoritative stance. Instead, what I'm going to do is speak as a learner, show my own journey of learning, and hope that I can turn around and pay forward the same help that I've received with my content. And so this yellow belt mentality is incredibly important to everything I do, especially in terms of writing technical content.
1: And how does that play out in your writing itself, that kind of approach and, and way of viewing
2: things? Probably the most direct way it comes out is in good sources and citations. You know, I have to make sure that I do my research. I have to make sure that I'm giving a proper understanding of my topic. And I have to make sure that I'm responding well to comments from my editors who might know more about a particular topic or just more about how to talk about it well. So first off, you know, just making sure I do my research well, cite my sources, that sort of stuff. Right. And then the second thing is just in choosing what I write about. I make sure that I only write when I think that I can provide a genuine insight into a topic that I haven't found someplace else. And so that might be only a very small alteration to something that already exists. But ultimately, it's about making sure that every time I open up a new file to create technical content, that I'm actually contributing something useful that people should actually spend their time reading. You know, it's it's mostly a mindset thing, but it does manifest itself in things like good citations and making sure that I'm not presenting myself as someone who I'm not. That actually segues perfectly into... What
1: we generally hear a lot about it in in our industry and perhaps others as well, but it's often called imposter syndrome. And I'm curious if that's something that you've experienced during this experience of writing your book, also with interviewing people that you felt were, I don't know if luminaries is the right word, but these are people that you looked up to and had learned from. And so,
2: how did that all kind of play together? I mean, of course, I've felt imposter syndrome. One anecdote that I use in the book is Imagine if as a college student sitting in my dorm room, I decided, okay, you know, today I'm going to write the headline story for the New York Times. And (laughs) it's, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and pitch the editor right now. It's going to be great. They're going to love it, right? That, That would be ridiculous. But in this very narrow world of technical content, that's actually pretty much possible. You know, my third client ever was Smashing Magazine, which is, you know, this great operation and this huge name in technical content. And so, I think that good things come to those who ask for them. And the other half of that is on the internet, no one knows you're a cat. Between the two of those things, I figured out that if I just put my work out there and try to let my work speak for itself, then I can really get an understanding of where I am, what I need to learn, and sort of overcome those feelings. In terms of doing the interviews, yeah, I was crazy nervous. I was nervous writing the emails to ask for them. I was nervous scheduling them. And doing the interviews themselves, you know, I was just this, this combination of sitting quietly so I didn't disturb the microphone and also trying to jump up and down with joy that I was actually talking to these people. The way that I overcame that was just research and preparation. I did a ton of research before every single interview that I did. I read their stuff. I read the old stuff. You know, I read everything that I could get my hands on from the people who I was interviewing. And because of that, I had very specific questions that I was very confident in. I knew that I had a sort of script that would drive the conversation towards getting genuine insights out of them that I knew they hadn't shared in other places, and that I knew were what I needed for my book. And so with that preparation, I was able to sort of overcome this both anxiety and excitement, and just focus on getting out of these conversations exactly what I needed to make a great book. So you maybe were a little bit starstruck, but sounds like
1: good preparation ahead of time was a, a key element in helping you sort of calm your nerves.
2: Starstruck is exactly the light word. You know, I'm sure that my friends and family are just sick and tired of me talking about how great Patrick McKenzie is all the time, but I'm not going to stop.
1: And it's funny because we have our own rock stars in our industry and anyone outside our industry has no idea who we're talking about, which is really funny. It is. Have you received any negative criticism about your project or about
2: the book itself? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the first thing was just from launch day. I mean, I had almost 20,000 people see the book in a day and you can't show something to 20,000 people without a couple of them getting mad at you for even making it. Hmm. And so, you know, of course, there were the negative comments on Haku News and, you know, some people have asked for refunds, some of them politely, some of them not so politely, but only seven so far, which I'm pretty pleased about. And so I think that the way the way I should talk about this is by giving an example. Someone left a negative comment on Haku News where they went in and they found this essay that I'd written on my personal blog like a year ago, and they found one sentence in it that had a uh, grammatical mistake. And they pointed it out and they said, hey, this guy made this mistake over here. And if he can't even write properly in this thing, why should we trust what he has to say in this whole book? I bet this whole thing's a fraud. And so, you know, what I, what I wrote back is just, hey, thanks for pointing that out. Now I can go fix it. Would you do me a favor and go through all of my other work too and see if you can help me edit that? <laughs> and then, you know, a couple other people in the comment section came and gave him a proper smackdown, which I really appreciated. But Ultimately, it's about just trying to engage with people in good faith. That's something I'm very new to running a business. You know, I, I've had my whole operation, I guess, kind of like a consulting operation, working with clients. But you know, basically, it was two weeks ago that I became the suddenly became the owner of a decently popular information product business, and so I've had to really quickly figure out what my approach to that would be. And ultimately, I only want to be in business with people who want to be in business with me. And so I just try to assume good faith, even when it's unreasonable to do so, and make sure that all of my engagement works like that. And then if that is not responded to well, I just, you know, even if it means refunding a purchase or whatever, I just get rid of them as a customer and focus on helping people who actually want me to help them. So you basically follow
1: the the wisdom of letting your greatest critic become your greatest advisor, which sounds like a great approach.
2: Exactly. If someone can tell me something that's legitimately wrong with my work, you know, I have an ego like everyone else. I don't love hewing that. But if I can heal it, and then I can actually use it to fix my stuff, then that's great. And that's just going to help out the people who are really excited for it. You've shared a lot about your writing background, but we haven't
1: gone too deep yet into your software engineering background. So tell us some about your history as a software
2: engineer and software developer. So this is where I wish I could say, you know, my first word was Java, and I picked up a keyboard when I was three years old. But the honest answer is I started programming when I took a intro to computer science class in my second semester of college. I'd messed around with it a little bit before then, you know done a few online tutorials about JavaScript or Ruby on Rails or whatever. But I got serious about programming about a month later, when some friends took me to my very first hackathon at Iowa State University. And I had this great time creating this awful, awful JavaScript application that, you know, when it worked, didn't really do much and mostly just didn't work because it was a hackathon and we'd been programming for a few months each. So from there, you know, I switched my major from economics to computer science and I focused on figuring out what I could do outside of class to really get myself to at the time I thought I just you know wanted to work at a big tech company and have a good career doing that. And so I was focused on doing projects outside of class. You know, I built this I spent years building and revising this communication platform for the elderly called GrammyGram. Uh, that my friends make fun of me for to this day. (laughs) And just working on projects, I really fell in love with Django and just generally a Pythonic approach to development in general, and mostly started focusing on full-stack web development. From there, I've had a few internships. I've worked at... CUNA Mutual Group, Principal Financial Group, uh, MarkForged, those are the three places I've had technical internships. And I'm returning to the last one as a full-time software engineer, which I'm really excited about. So that's sort of my technical background, is mostly it's, you know, a lot of people either self-studied or learned in college. I did sort of a mix of both. And I think that's a really effective strategy because I got the best of what each approach has to offer. How important was that technical background for writing this particular book? Like,
1: How did that play into your writing process and the, the knowledge that you share with your readers?
2: So my dad's an air traffic controller, and when he talks to other air traffic controllers at work or outside of work, sometimes they'll, they'll throw in terms that I don't necessarily understand because they have a specialized vernacular for how they talk to each other and way of understanding that, okay... This person talks like this. This means they're an air traffic controller. It's the same thing when I was writing this book. You know, I wouldn't always necessarily say that, hey, I revised my writing. I could even say that I refactored it. You know, putting in language from software engineering helps you identify to your audience who you are, what your background is, and sort of imply to them who you're writing for. So... That's an important, subtle piece of identifying both yourself as an author and then telling your potential readers, you know, whether or not they're in the audience that you imagine for your work. So that was definitely an important aspect. And then, I mean, I did, you know, I did have to write code for the book. Uh, one thing was actually I whipped up this little Django application for having, I had all these interview quotes in a text file in text files. I had my book in a different text files and I was able to write a Django application using the admin panel that took like an hour to write and just gave me a nice little database that let me pull out quotes and order them. We assign them, you know, assign them to, okay, this person said this, I'm going to put it in this chapter, in this section, the subsection. And that was really helpful because then when it was time to actually put all the quotes in the book and add context, I was able to just do a quick sort by, get from, you know, chapter zero all the way through chapter 16, where the different quotes went and just go through linearly and copy those in. And so creating this little piece of custom software saved me a ton of time. And that's the thing is with a technical background, you're just going to think like an engineer, you're going to think differently and understand what is possible to create. And so A process, every part of the writing process was informed by that. So clearly having a technical background was important for writing this particular
1: book to software developers. Once again, consider the audience. What technologies did you use
2: for making the book? I love, you know, just having all of my stuff in Git version controlled. I'm the sort of person who commits all the time. So it was important to have something that was compatible with that. So I ended up just using the same thing that I use for all of my projects for clients, which is just, you know, Markdown, VS Code, Terminal. And I broke the book out by chapter. And so each chapter had its own file. And then I had sort of all of those open. I had my appendices. I just had a ton of Markdown files everywhere. There is some code in the book because I include example technical tutorials. And so I was able to just make a subfolder, same repository, put in all those code samples, work with them, figure those out. So that was cool. All of that was just sort of standard, straightforward, the same stuff I've been using with clients, markdown and code. And then it got a little more complicated when it was time to hit publish because I needed to create a PDF, and EPUB, a Mobi. I assumed this is going to be easy. I'm just going to use Pandoc. I'm going to put it through this and it's going to be great. Spoiler alert, it was not great. <laughs> so I had just all of these terrible issues with trying to get the PDF to look decent, trying to get a table of contents in there, trying to do all this stuff. And so I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, but I pulled out Microsoft Word and it worked great. My mom, when I was working with her for the edits, she's a longtime Word user. So I was already using Pandoc to turn stuff into Word and send that to her, get it back, turn it back into Markdown. And so I just expanded that. I, I pandocked into Word, used their formatting tools, which was surprisingly easy. Like I know it's WYSIWYG, I know you, you know, you can't stick it in version control. I know all the issues with this approach. But ultimately, it got the job done. You know, I had to do page numbering, sizing the pages, putting in an automatic table of contents, sizing the images, making sure everything looked good. And that was really easy to accomplish in Word. And then it exported to a PDF just fine with all the links working and all of these issues that I was experiencing trying to go directly through Pandoc. Those all fell away. I'm sure that if I knew LaTeX or something that I might have had a better chance at doing a all technical solution. But in this case, you know, Microsoft Word did the trick. And then for the EPUB, Pandoc did work there to its credit. Markdown to EPUB was incredibly easy with Pandoc. Pandoc doesn't support Mobi, which is the format that Kindle's use. So I pulled out Calibre Reader, took the EPUB, just ran it through that to make it a Mobi, took those all, put them up. And, you know, I had to get my ISBN numbers, obviously. Um, and so I just went through, there's only one registrar for that. So I went through there, got the ISBN numbers, tuck those in. You know, there's a little bit of metadata that you have to configure, but on the EPUB, but Pandoc does that for you. So all in all, once I just sort of swallowed my pride and opened up Microsoft Word, the process was pretty
1: straightforward. <laughs> and then how about distributing the book? Now you have this PDF, you have an assigned ISBN number. Yeah, well, not just PDF, of course, the other formats you mentioned. So, so now what, how do you get the word
2: out and how do you distribute it? You know, I'm a programmer. I've used Stripe before. I'm thinking, okay, I'm just gonna set up a little e-commerce on my website. You know, I'm gonna write some code. It's gonna take me a few, wait, it's going to take me a few weeks. And this is with my crazy underestimation of how long stuff takes. I better figure this out. I better use <laughs> an out-of-the-box solution. So uh, that's how I came across Gumroad, which is just a pretty simple e-commerce platform. You know, I looked at the, the fee that they charge on top of Stripe. I thought it was really reasonable um, compared to, you know, I, I looked at, obviously, I looked at Amazon. But I was not about to give them 65% of every single book sale when I could give a platform like Gumroad 3.5%. So I listed on there. I have, you know, I've written and talked a lot about my launch strategy, and that's back to the business side. But ultimately, pretty quick, it just relied on a Hacker News post that did incredibly well. Um, And then going on Twitter and getting my signal boosted by the people who I interviewed for the book because I had been keeping touch with them the whole time and sort of convincing them that this is a project that they're going to get a positive return on the credibility that they invest in it. So between that and then just reaching out to my professional network, letting people know that I had been working on this book for a long time, I'd appreciate it if they check it out and spread the word. That was the the launch strategy from the business side. So
1: from the tool side, what would you possibly do differently next time? Like, would you maybe just suck it up and open up Word from the beginning? Or I, because I agree, I like VS Code and Markdown files. So is there anything different you might
2: change? Writing in Markdown was great, and it gave me a lot of flexibility. You know, If I'd wanted to make it an HTML online book, for example, that would have been pretty simple for Markdown. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to use the tools that you're comfortable with. In in this case, for me, that was Markdown. And it's also important to use tools that save you time. In this case, for me, that was Gumroad. And so what I would have done differently, I would have switched to Microsoft Word much earlier in the uh, formatting process for sure. And I would have done a bit more to think about how the stuff would look earlier on. For example, when I was writing the code snippets, I wasn't really paying attention to the line lengths. And then I you know, start putting it in Microsoft Word, formatting it, and I realize, wait, this is 150 characters and it's wrapping three times and looks really ugly. And so I had to address that as best I could. So just at the beginning, starting out with the end in mind, would have been helpful for some of these choices. But again, this you know, is my first book. So just next time, I'm going to know, I'm going to have this experience and I'm going to know at the start what to expect. Well, this has been a great conversation about your background and your
1: book. And uh, I think our listeners will gain a lot of insights that they can pursue for themselves as they seek to be better writers and communicators as software developers.
2: If people want to find out more about what you're up to, where should they go? So my central hub on the internet is my website, philipkiley.com. That's spelled P-H-I-L-I-P-K-I-E-L-Y.com. And my Twitter is at Philip underscore Kylie. And then I'm also on YouTube as Philip Kylie. I'm basically just my name everywhere, same photo everywhere. Once you've found my website, it's pretty easy to find me wherever else you are. Great.
1: And that'll all be in the show notes too, if people have forgotten how to spell it. Well, thank you so much, Philip, for joining me today
2: on Software Engineering Radio. Thanks, Jeff. I had a lot of fun. And, you know, looking at the sort of people who've interviewed before for the show, it's really an honor to be here. And I appreciate taking the time to have this conversation. Well, it's been great having you. This is Jeff Doolittle for Software
0: Engineering Radio. Thanks for listening. Developers, take your marks. It's time to upgrade your data platform to InterSystems IRIS. It's time to deliver complex mission-critical applications in the fastest route possible. It's time to use any data from any source. It's time to embed analytics and create interactive user interfaces. So what are you waiting for? Choose your language. Choose your tools. Choose your environment. Collaborate, build faster, and deploy more efficiently. Done and done. Tomorrow's next breakthroughs are waiting for you today. InterSystems IRIS Data Platform. The fastest way to build applications. Ready. Set. Code. Start coding for free. Visit intersystems.com slash try to try iris. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc radio.net. This and all other episodes of SC Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.